Damn, Jay. I still cannot believe Bishop spent so long trying to murder a child. In his dubious defense, Miles, he did think hope would basically bring about an apocalypse. But he basically brought about multiple apocalypses trying to get to hope. I did say it was dubious. What eventually made him back off, anyway? I remember that Cable shunted him way into the future. Nah, that just made him mad. Ultimately, Bishop came around on his own. Okay, but what do you do after spending literal millennia trying to kill a kid? Well, in Bishop's case, you head back to the present. Risky, but in character. And get possessed by the demon bear. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 340 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to the future, which is the past for some characters. We'll, we'll get to that. Uh, the point is, today we're going to be talking about the XSE miniseries. Which is not only the future, but the future as remembered as the past from the present, which is actually in the past now since we're recording it in what's technically the future. Obviously. So, now that you've got all that clear, listeners, um... Let's give some background on Bishop and sort of what the deal is with his timeline, because we're going to be delving pretty heavily into that today. Right. So, remember Days of Future Past, uh, a.k.a. Earth-811? That was the future timeline where mutant-hunting robotic sentinels took over the world and mutants were imprisoned in concentration camps? Branching off from that timeline is Earth-1191, a slightly farther future timeline that takes place chronologically right after something similar to Days of Future Past. In Earth-1191's still-pretty-near-but-somewhat-less-near-future, mutants and humans rose up together after the Sentinel started to attack and oppress pretty much everybody. The name of that uprising was the Summer's Rebellion. Huh. Who led that one? I can't possibly imagine. Probably Vulcan. Havoc was too busy working on his dissertation. God, we're never gonna stop giving Havoc shit for that, are we? We're not. Not until he finishes it. I love the idea, though, that, that the, the rebellion against the Sentinels was led by Cyclops, because he's got such a great track record with fighting Sentinels. Um, you've got him using the Danger Room while well, he's depowered against Sentinels in um, X-Men First Class. And then, of course, my favorite Silver Age story where he convinces a bunch of Sentinels to go fight the Sun. Yeah, I think the Summer's Rebellion was a little less straightforward. I get the impression a lot of people died, but still, well done, Cyclops. And now all of those Sentinels have gone to fight the Sun. Mm-hmm. Well, as society rebuilt itself, mutants formed a police force to go after mutant criminals. Kind of like the Comics Code Authority, but with more laser rifles. Like the Comics Code Authority, but likewise governed by the Comics Code Authority because it exists only in comic books. This is turning into the time travel thing all over again. Well, anyway, this group was the XSE, the Xavier Security Enforcers, named after the now-mythical Charles Xavier. Originally named the Xavier School Enforcers, but they realized early on that, that sounded less like a special police force and more like hall monitors. The XSE was a group of largely mulleted future cops, clad in outfits shockingly similar to Gary Coleman's train conductor outfit from an old episode of The Electric Company. One member of the XSE was Lucas Bishop, who followed a time-traveling mutant criminal named Trevor Fitzroy through a portal to the present day of the main Marvel Universe, Earth-616. Now, present day is, of course, early 90s. Frickin' Trevor Fitzroy. I hate that guy. Nice hair, though. I guess. Alas, Trevor's portal was one way, so Bishop was stuck in a time before he was born— and after the usual number of misunderstanding-based fights, he joined the X-Men. Along with his snazzy outfit and mullet, Bishop brought with him to the present a techno-bracelet that contained the personality, memories, and holographic appearance of his dead sister Shard, who had been his commanding officer in the XSE. After Forge fixed up said bracelet, Holo Shard came to life-ish, and joined X-Factor. So that brings us to the present as of the comics, but... 
What about the Bishop siblings' past, which is to say the X-Men's future, which is to say possibly our present or our immediate future? Because Days of Future Past happened, like, what, eight years ago now? Yeah, you know. And we should say as we dive into this, this is actually the second Bishop slash XSE miniseries written by the same person, John Ostrander. There will be a third, but we've covered so much Bishop, Shard, and XSE stuff lately that we're going to deal with that another time. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. Um, this one, I gotta say, is definitely the, the, the lesser of the two we've gotten to so far, and that brings us to XSE number one, Time Lost, written by John Ostrander, penciled by Chris Gardner, inked by Terry Austin and Tom Palmer, colored by Derek Bellman, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. So before we dive into the plot, I do want to talk about one thing I appreciated, which is that the cover of number one is Shard charging straight ahead and zapping while Bishop runs behind her. And then the first page is the opposite. Bishop is running straight ahead and zapping while Shard is behind him. So, you know, equal time. Nice. So before we get into the plot, I want to bring up something that I'm really uncomfortable with, and that is that this whole series is distilled copaganda. Yeah, this is basically a story where the future cops are all good guys, and the criminals that they face are all not just bad guys, but, like, super bad guys. It's very black and white. Or blue and rainbow, I guess, because the criminals tend to have multicolored hair. Well, and specifically, the mutants who consider the XSE class traitors are all supervillains. Yeah, yeah, for the most part. I mean, okay, so there's that, and then there's the fact that the plot of the series can just be sort of summarized as, hey, remember that time that our entire origin story? So, copaganda, yes, but also recapaganda. That word. I mean, it is in the dark future timeline of Earth 1191, I assume. Valid. So, anyway... Yeah, so the, the whole the whole series is framed around Bishop and Shard reminiscing about the questionably good old days of the distant future. I think it really works as a framing story, actually, because remember, the Shard that we have here, the holographic Shard, she only has her own memories that were implanted in that weird little techno bracelet. She doesn't really know what Bishop's motivations were, what he was up to when they were separated, and she doesn't really have a full idea of what happened after she died in the future. I don't think she even knows how she died. I think her memory cuts off a little bit before her death. I think it does, yeah. This does give the story a nice bit of continuity context. I mean, otherwise it would just be a giant, giant flashback. And with this, it's a flashback that has a reason to be told. It is kind of an as-you-know-Bob story, but only partially, and I appreciate the effort. So... In looking at my notes and in talking about this, I realize I'm coming up against a very specific problem, and that is that Lucas Bishop's codename and the name he goes by is his surname, which he shares with his sister. So I'm thinking of them as Bishop and Shard. And they're, they're, they're not. They're Lucas and Shard Bishop. Right. They can be Lucas and Shard or Bishop and Bishop, but you can't really mix and match there. I mean, I think we'll get to it, but later on, a family member of theirs refers to them as Bishop and Shard, which is just weird. I mean, Lucas is the older sibling, so I suppose it's feasible that his family started referring to him as Bishop immediately, and then when his younger sister was born, they were like, well, shit, we can't call her Bishop, so I guess we have to call her by her first name, I guess. I also love that they named their two kids Lucas and Shard. Maybe that's why Lucas goes by Bishop, because otherwise he realizes that there's no way he could compete in the name department with his sister. Seems reasonable. Now, speaking of their early life, the Bishop kids were initially raised largely by a dude named Hancock and their grandmother, or at least someone they called grandmother, who is clearly hinted in this miniseries to be Storm. Yeah, so I want to talk about both of those, because here we have hints that Grandma is Storm, in the Bishop miniseries, we had hints briefly that maybe Hancock was Cyclops, and there's some evidence for and there's some evidence against for each of those. So who should we start with, Jay? Let's start with Grandmother. Okay, so we do know that Earth-1191, Bishop's Dark Future, basically follows from Days of Future Past, or at least an alternate future extremely similar to Days of Future Past. And in Days of Future Past... Storm died. We saw it on panel. 
We know that this timeline didn't exactly follow that pattern, and it's reasonable that she might have survived, or that she might have survived but been permanently depowered, as Grandmother is in this case. And she even vaguely alludes to what might have happened when she's talking to Hancock, who brings up her past as a freedom fighter. Hush, Hancock! People think me dead! With my powers gone, it is better for the children and myself that they do. These children have burden enough without my heritage upon them. So, that is interesting, because, as we know, Bishop is at least somewhat romantically involved with Storm in the present day. And maybe she's his grandma. Ooh. Yeah, that's that's going even, even somewhat further than a, a Back to the Future. Well, let's take it in a slightly different direction, because in a recent Generation X story we covered, the one where M-Plate comes back and Bishop helps the kids out, we find that when Bishop wakes up from being knocked out, he sees Monet and recognizes a family member, I believe his grandmother. So it's possible that this could be M from Generation X, Monet Saint-Croix. We know that she has a somewhat familiar relationship with Gateway. We know from later continuity that Lucas is actually the great-grandson of Gateway. It is a little weird because the look of this version of Grandma Bishop looks a hell of a lot like Storm, but, you know, conceivably, could be Monet. Would that then imply that Monet is actually Gateway's daughter? Uh, you know, I guess if we're going with that, it would, which I think is definitely not the case in main continuity. But could so, be on Earth know, 1191. Exactly. I mean, we do know that when Bishop came back in time to Earth 616, he said the X-Men were all wrong from what he'd heard about. Maybe that was just uh, the story being told incorrectly to him when he was a kid, or maybe, indeed, it does diverge in some directions. Like that i don't know honestly i think we may be putting more effort into figuring this part out than any of the writers or editors did okay well while we're unpacking stuff shall we move on to hancock let's move on to hancock like with storm cyclops is dead in days of future past we don't see him die he's already dead we see his tombstone when days of future past starts that said a later shot in this miniseries of the summer's rebellion does show a sketchy version of a character who looks like a cross between Earth-616 Cyclops and Age of Apocalypse Cyclops. And the part that looks like AOA, aside from the shirtlessness, is the long hair of that version. Okay, I mean, I know AOA Cyclops wasn't always shirtless, but I think he was at least a little. I, I don't know that he was that much. Well, he should have been. But we've also seen Cyclops from this timeline. We meet him in later X-Factor, when Layla Miller travels to Earth-1191 and meets him, and he is substantially a cyborg by that point. He no longer needs a visor, but he's also only got one eye, and again, is pretty much a cyborg at this point in very, very visible ways. So I was thinking about the doesn't need a visor thing anymore, because in this miniseries, we see Hancock without any sort of eye coverings, and he's fine. In the Bishop miniseries, from around the same period in their history, or maybe just slightly after, Hancock has rags over his eyes, like a blindfold, and talks about how in the Summer's Rebellion, he burned his eyes out using his powers. I think that may just be a straight-up continuity error, though, so I don't know that that really gives us any information in either direction. It could be. It's definitely easier to rationalize Hancock not being Cyclops, but someone else with optically-based powers based on what we've got, but you can probably do some work and, and you know, merge them together, or at, at least, you know, look at one as a continuity error that was supposed to be the other. Okay, so Grandma Bishop and Hancock. What is our official, unofficial verdict on whether we think they're the characters they are at least somewhat implied to be? We're looking at them through the memory of small children who were fairly young when they died, and who we know idolized the X-Men. I think it's reasonable to assume that neither of them are the characters they're set up to be, but that their images have become conflated with those characters' images over time in Lucas and Shard's minds. Ooh, I, I like that. Okay, let's go with that. I'm into it. I gotta say, though, while we're talking about inconsistent appearances, can we talk about the coloring in this section of the first issue? The fact that as a kid, Shard is consistently colored as white? Not every time, but like a lot of the time. And that's 
unfortunate. We don't have a ton of black superheroes in, at this point in the 90s. And so uh, that one makes me wince a little when I see it, which is a lot in issue number one. So, you know, we know comics are collaborative. Would you lay that one on the colorist or the editor? Both. It's a colorist error. It's something an editor should have caught. Um, there's also a point later on when Randall is, co- is colored as Bishop. Oh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Okay, well, continuity stuff and coloring quibbles aside, uh, what's going on at this portion in the childhoods of Lucas and Shard slash Bishop and Bishop? Okay, the Bishop kids grow up hearing that the exhumes, these are um, E-X-H-U-M-E-S as in to exhume, um, are the cool mutant freedom fighters, and the XSE are sellout class traders, at least half of which I would say is accurate. Except then, an exhume threatens Shard and Bishop saves her, and then the XSE shoots the exhume and Bishop's like, oh, they're good guys, because they shot someone who was mean to my sister, and from then on, the XSE are just uncontestedly the good guys. Okay, I mean, I don't want to be defending the police state here, but I will say, in the context of the story, number one, that exhume was about to, like, shove a mutant blender into Shard's skull, and number two... I think we alluded to this earlier, but literally every XSD member is a super, super good person, and every criminal is a super, super bad person. So I can kind of see where Bishop is coming from, even if I raise an eyebrow at that aspect of the story. Fascinatingly, the only person who ever actually occupies any gray area in this series is Fitzroy. Wouldn't that be more green area? Because, you know, his hair? Eh, grayish green. Okay, legit. wonder if it would have gotten gray if he'd lived longer. I don't know, it'd be like a nice sort of light seafoam color. That could be pretty. So sometime after their grandmother died, Hancock was also murdered um, by Exhumes, and Bishop and Shard got taken in by XSE members, offered cadet spots in the organization by XSE officers who had fought with Hancock in the Summer's Rebellion, and so who who knew him from, from back then. One thing I like about this portion, as Bishop is deciding what the kids should do... He mentions explicitly that a lot of mutants do see the XSE as the newer version of the Hound program, of the mutants that were used by the human oppressors to track down and capture other mutants. And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, these are mutants who are going after their own, in a sense, and... You know, in the real gray-slash-green world, the line between doing the right thing and doing the wrong thing, obeying the law, breaking the law, that can get kind of fuzzy. So I like that it's addressed. I kind of wish it were addressed more, but it is there, and that's cool. I wish it were addressed less one-sidedly, because what we get consistently through the series is, yeah, some mutants think of the XSE as hounds, but they're wrong. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, They wear much less spiky outfits than hounds for starts, and they have way more mullets. I mean, Rachel Summers had a mullet, but not until she was done being a hound. And way, way, way more guns. The XSE isn't just a police force. They are explicitly a paramilitary organization. Yeah, I mean, part of that is just their deal, and part of it is it's the mid-90s. Pretty much everybody's carrying around suitcase-sized guns just to go grocery shopping. It's kind of depressing. That too. Now, the XSE also knows how to indoctrinate kids' rights, so no sooner have they joined up than Shard and Lucas get their own summary of, you know, how the XSE came to be from one of their commanding officers. You are the future of our people, and looking at you like this does bode well for our people. It is our lot to make something of you all. First, you must learn something of what we are. Without knowledge of the past, there is no hope for the future. Xavier taught us this. You know of the concentration camps for Homo Superior, of how each mutant was tattooed over the right eye with an M, so that even if one escaped the camp, he could easily be identified. You've all heard of the Summer's Rebellion, in which I was honored to serve. You know how the alliance of humans and mutants brought low the hated Sentinels, those robots designed to detect and kill or immobilize mutants, or anyone whose talents made them feared and hated by normal humans. The Sentinels assumed dictatorial powers over all beings until Summers came and forged an alliance between human and mutant to bring them down. Alas, almost as soon as the rebellion succeeded, that alliance started to break apart, especially since Summers was no longer there to keep it going. Our people wanted to move out of the camps and make better lives, but over and over, they were met with hostility and driven away. At this point, you get the founding of the Exhumes, and 
ultimately it was agreed that mutants would found a group to police their own and protect humans and mutants alike, that being, of course, the XSE. And so we came into being. The XSE, Xavier's security enforcers, mutant veterans came together from all over to keep the dream alive. And the tattoo, the M that was once our shame, was made into a badge of honor. You cadets have to earn your M's. When you graduate, if you graduate, you will be given your tattoo, marking you once and for all time as a member of the XSE. So that's kind of fucked up. I mean, I don't know. It's it's weird in that uh, that symbol certainly marked a great deal of pain and suffering and death. But I think there's also something to be said for reclaiming it, you know? Yeah, but it's also a symbol that's still worn by people who aren't members of the XSE. So having it be the primary identifier for members of, of the XSE seems like a really bad idea logistically as well. Yeah, and we do know that characters as young as Bishop and Bishop have their M's that they got in the camps, and I guess in the context of the story, they really seem to have no complaints about it, but it's an interesting choice. I think if nothing else, it just sort of retroactively makes the fact that all the XSC members we've seen so far have M's make sense. It would make more sense if there if it were just a generational thing. Yeah, yeah, probably true. Well, we also meet... Hecate, or uh, apparently Hecate in the original Greek pronunciation, I don't know how she says it, who's There's the founder of the... She's got an oddly placed apostrophe, too, which, which further conflates the matter. Uh, it's true. But she's the founder of the XSE, and Jay, did you initially think she was Jubilee? Because she kind of looks a hell of a lot like Generation X-era Jubilee, just paler. I did not. My initial thought was Domino, although she lacks the black marking just because her skin is colored dead white. It is, yeah, but her outfit is basically a version of the XSE uniform, but with a red base and gold accents, and that looks surprisingly like the Gen X uniform. And between that, the dangly earrings she's wearing, and the fact that Bishop, when he came to the present, referred to Jubilee as the last X-Man, I kind of wondered, and I was a little sad that that wasn't the case. That is a good, a good question and idea, and yeah, it's unfortunate that you don't really see that played out. Alas. Now, among Lucas and Shard's fellow cadets is a young asshole by the name of Fitzroy. His name will be retconned to have been Trevor Fitzroy, but it's just Fitzroy here, and it's specifically that he was it's specific that he was named Fitzroy because that was that that's the surname commonly taken by the illegitimate sons of of, of kings. Okay, so kinda like snow or sand or whatever in a song of ice and fire. Yes, very, very much like that. Now, he's going to be a low-key nuisance who ends up dating Shard briefly. But what I'm wondering looking at this is how far what we've got here with him as a young XSE cadet uh, contradicts his backstory as shown in later X-Factor when he's an active member of the Summer's Rebellion. Yeah, no, that's a really good question because here he'd be a little young for that to make any sense. So what I'm wondering is whether... You can rationalize that away by saying that the Fitzroy who was part of the Summer's Rebellion time-traveled. You know, that is kind of his power, so yeah, let's go with it. On the other hand, he'd have to have done it during the very brief gap between his decision to leave the XSE and his criminal life, because Summer's Rebellion Fitzroy is distinctly a good guy. Like, he is on the side of the heroes, he is a hero, and he doesn't go evil until he dies and then comes back to life. Right, right, because Layla Miller's power involves resurrecting people, but they have no soul. Exactly. So he would have had to have done all of that in this very, very brief window of, of time passing in his primary timeline, and then come back evil and gone after the, the modern Hellfire Club. Man, that guy sounds as busy as Wolverine. Pretty much. Now, as kids in the XSE, Shard was stuck in Lucas's shadow. He was the brilliant, fearless one. She was younger and sometimes in need of reassurance or rescue. Later on, he'd end up getting credit for her achievements if they were out together. So we're not only getting their history here as, as you know, members of the XSE, but also the history of how their dynamic has evolved over that time. Right, and we know that Shard will end up as Bishop's commanding officer— we heard in the Bishop miniseries before this that that was in large part because Bishop just didn't want to rise through the ranks, that he liked being a beat cop, essentially. But this adds an interesting wrinkle to it. I, I kind of like it, honestly, just because Shard hasn't had a very distinct personality, and that ambition based on 
a desire to actually be recognized. That's kind of a cool take. Yeah, I like that a lot. So that brings us to XSE number two, Future Intense. This is written by John Ostrander again, with art by Diodato Studios and Mozart Kudo, colors by Derek Bellman, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. I gotta say, I like the art in this one much, much better. That's interesting, because to me, the fact that there are so many artists, um, I think Mozart Kudo is actually a member of Diodato Studios, that makes it kind of jarring going from one page to the next. But yeah, the good art in this issue is genuinely very good. Yeah, agreed. The opening narration, I don't know if it's good, but I think it's great. Uh, Jay, would you do the honors? This is the danger room of the future, where young mutants train and hone the talents and abilities that set them apart from normal human beings. It's called The Street. Coming to a theater near you this summer. So on The Street... We see the incident that gets Bishop actually promoted to being an XSE officer, not just a cadet. Right, a bunch of cadets are attacked by M-plates, and Bishop organizes the cadets to defend themselves until XSE shows up to turn the fight. I guess we should probably talk about what M-plates are, because it's been a while. M-plates are vampires with mouths in their hands who eat mutant bone marrow. They are indeed, the genetic marrow. We've of course seen M-Plate in Generation X, who presumably is the person who created at least the first round of M-Plates that ended up in Bishop's future. Gotta say, I am grateful to Ostrander for sticking with just marrow here instead of, um, genetic marrow. And of course, to disambiguate, we don't mean, like, Sarah, the Morlock, marrow. She's, uh, off doing her own thing right now. Right, lowercase m marrow, bone marrow. Exactly. There is a really cool bit of art in this fight, though. Like, you mentioned the art's good in this issue, and I, overall I agree. Bishop and this other cadet named Shirley, I don't know why it's hilarious to me that there's, like, a future cop cadet named Shirley. I think that's because it was the name of my maternal grandmother, and so it's such an old lady name for me. Oh, it's super an old lady name. I mean, apologies to any younger Shirleys, but we're afraid you may have an old lady name. That's okay. It's a cool old lady name. Old ladies are awesome. You ever see the triple to Belleville? Full of awesome old ladies. Oh yes, many times. But yeah, there's this really cool panel where Bishop and Shirley are just surrounded by M-plates closing in. And they're not fighting back to back, but they're still shooting in different directions. And so you see their laser blast like crossing over one another. You really do get the impression that these are kids who are being very effectively trained in street combat. Also, Shard's powers manifest at this point, and they are cool, although their description is it doesn't make a ton of sense, which is that she can turn light into energy. But, like, it's all right. I guess different energy? Like, zappier energy? Yeah, zappier energy. You know, we've talked about this. It's the 90s. If a given mutant character is created, their powers are probably just energy shit. Yep, and so indeed are Shard's. I'm a little unclear on how old they are at this point when, when Bishop is made a full officer, because in the art, Bishop looks maybe like 13 or 14. Yeah, but at the same time, if this is a messed up future where people live and die quickly and things are very dangerous, I can see them, you know, basically considering somebody to be an adult earlier. Now, once Lucas Bishop is an XSE officer, we get to meet his two wingmen. Those are Malcolm and Randall. These are the guys who had mostly interchangeable personalities in Uncanny X-Men 282 to 287 and various previous flashbacks. We know that they were Bishop's two best buddies, and they were the two guys who were killed coming back to the present. They're only really differentiated by the colors of their, their mullets and guns. Yeah, but that was enough for me. I read their origin issues so many times as a kid, and the fact that, like, Malcolm had hand guns that shot out multiple lasers from his knuckles and randall had a cool little mustache and they both had awesome mullets that was enough for me but they work a lot better with distinct personalities and i will give this miniseries one thing it makes me care much more about malcolm and randall as characters not just as character designs oh agreed um it, it also definitely establishes randall as my favorite of the two yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're both pretty great, but okay, let's start with Malcolm and lead up to your favorite then. What's Malcolm's deal now that he actually has a backstory and a personality? So Malcolm has dreamed of being in the XSE, being out on the street and doing good. He is also the rich kid of an influential father, and so he gets what he wants, but he really, really wants 
to do things right. As Bishop puts it, Feisty little mutant, aren't you? I like that in my men. Yeah, you do. Yeah, Malcolm's cool. Like, he gets really annoyed whenever anybody thinks he's trying to just coast on his privilege. He's also very, very serious and by the book. I think because he's so obsessed with being taken seriously as his own future cop, not just, like, a nepotism-based future cop. Randall, on the other hand, is an insubordinate swashbuckly badass who is specifically swashbuckly because he absolutely idolizes the classic X-Men Nightcrawler. I mean, he's... Not wrong. Oh, he's absolutely not wrong, and he's delightful, and I'm pretty sure that's why he's got the tiny mustache, because Kurt, when he's using an image inducer, always does the Errol Flynn thing. It's pretty great. And of course, these two initially can't stand each other. But then they fall in love. I mean, kind of. Mainly, then Malcolm's brother is killed by an Exhume raid on this place called Harmony Base, which is where mutants and humans, like, don't hate each other. And Randall's really there for him, and they become inseparable after that. And this is just the tiniest bit of backstory, but it really, really works. Oh, Malcolm and Randall, they're someone's favorite characters. I appreciate them. They're some of my favorite characters. And that brings us to XSC number three, Future Betrayed. Written by John Ostrander, with art by Diodato Studios and Mozart Kuto, colors by Shannon Blanchard, and letters by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And... Once again, this is mostly flashback, but the framing story, I do just want to call out the fact that as Bishop and Bishop are talking, Shard, who, remember, is a an intangible hologram most of the time, phases her head into the refrigerator and remarks that, oh, yeah, I guess the light really does go off when you close the door. And that's just such a fun little detail. But it also makes me realize it's a hard line to get, balancing the sort of goofy, irreverent Shard of the present with the dedicated, serious, ambitious, resentful shard of her past, our future, and I think it actually works to juxtapose them like that. I agree. This is very much a shard who has nothing left to prove. Exactly, and we saw that in the Bishop miniseries as well, as he was going after Mountjoy and she was just lounging, defying physics on his bike, because again, she's a hologram, not caring about who saw her. Like, shard doesn't give a shit. She knows that she's dead. She knows that she's not exactly real. And so, why worry? She needs to give Havoc a talking to at some point. God, she really does. It's a shame that he left the team right before she showed up. Ugh, as it goes. So, as part of Shard's rise, she focused really hard in trying to get promoted, trying to get credit, on a holographic technology program. The idea was that the XSE would make holographic clones of XSE officers to supplement or replace their forces. But unfortunately, the holograms kind of sucked. They didn't really have any decision-making capabilities. They weren't very smart or strategic. From what the various tech people were saying, what would be necessary to make a hologram that actually worked as a cop would be to fully process, read, destroy the brain of the person on which that hologram was modeled. Well, could you get a bunch of copies that way, though? You know, I was thinking about that. I mean, you look at Star Wars, and the entire clone army was based off of one dude, Jango Fett. And, you know, yes, Jango Fett did die, thanks to a purple lightsaber, but you still had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of clones. So, you know, I'm not saying we should, like, kill a future cop to make a lot of holo future cops, but I am just saying, like, maybe the math wouldn't be so bad, right? I feel strongly that the XSE should be disbanded in general, so, you know. Well, that may be the case, but then the incredibly evil, utterly without redeeming characteristics X-Humes would have no one to track them down. But then you could maybe work with them and engage in mutual aid and figure out more structural solutions to the issues that result in that revolution? If only the X-Humes were not fully irredeemable in every conceivable way. Frickin' fiction. <laughs> Frickin' fiction. So, Shard isn't about to give up. She really wants a promotion, and she really thinks this program is the way to get that promotion. She keeps hoping, well, maybe they could use the Shear technology that's around, that's under control of The Witness. You remember The Witness? So The Witness is a very, very old guy named LeBeau who is heavily hinted to be an extremely ancient gambit. He's sort of in prison sort of living in the lap of luxury in, in somewhere in like a cavern in the sewers, I think. And, um, 
and, and, and generally just being inscrutable with a heavy accent. It's really confusing because we know that he's a prisoner. We know that there's like this warden lady named Shackle who keeps him there. We know that he also has sexy ladies at his feet in prison as he just sits in his chair with a blanket draped over his naked body. Like, it's super confusing. I do not understand it. Gambit not locked up with you. You locked up with Gambit. (laughs) Right. Well, that's not going to happen, and Bishop keeps telling Shard in front of all of her commanding officers why that's not going to happen. And Shard is just getting so resentful at Lucas for not having her back, which means she thinks she's going to be in his shadow forever, basically. We call back here to the Bishop miniseries. Shard was the one of them who was always willing to make the hard calls, but... She says she never risked other people when she wouldn't risk herself, which is some heavy foreshadowing for what's eventually going to happen to her. Yep, exactly. I do like that as we see Hecate years later, because everyone's older now, like the bishops are young adults at this point, that she has a very different look. She has longer hair. She has an outfit that's more ceremonial looking rather than like a field outfit. I think a lot of art teams would kind of forget that, but it does give the series a real sense of progression, and that's cool. This is also where we get a wider window into Shard's relationship with Fitzroy. Fucking Fitzroy. So, it turns out that Fitzroy is the illegitimate son of the current Black King of the Hellfire Club, that he's planning to murder the legit heir so he can take over. Yeah, he tells this to Shard while they're canoodling off in the corner. Apparently, Shard dated Fitzroy just to piss Bishop off. And there's this delightful panel. I don't think it's supposed to be as funny as it is, but it's like Fitzroy looking all bad boy, wearing this leather jacket and jeans with his stubble on his face. And Shard is all draped over him in her cop uniform, which is weird. And then in the background around the corner is just a scowling Bishop in a turtleneck and hoodie looking so, so disapproving. It's like... I don't know. It's like a John Hughes sci-fi movie, but but not weird science. Not that one. Getting cock-blocked by Bishop has to be A, the kind of experience you don't really forget, and B, one of the more common experiences of any generation of X-Men he's part of. Oh man, like, you're about to hook up with your partner for the first time, you've planned it, it's gonna be magical, and then he just bashes down a brick wall and just tells you how that's, like, a misdemeanor under certain obscure codes. Or you just realize he's in the corner of the room glaring. (laughs) Writing up a little police report? No, not even doing that, like, because he's just, he's always everywhere, he keeps on just showing up randomly when he's first at the mansion, like, he just pops up everywhere because he's always lurking and, and patrolling around. You know, I can kind of see why Shard was so annoyed with him. Like, fully aside from the not wanting to be in his shadow thing, he's such a killjoy. I love him, but he's such a killjoy. Oh yeah, no, if I were if I were Bishop's younger sibling, I would definitely date just to piss him off, too. Well, anyway, like you were saying, Fitzroy is the illegitimate son of the Hellfire Club's Black King in this part of the future, and goes off to murder the legitimate son of the Black King to take his place— after which he becomes a human-targeting supervillain and forms a new group called the Hellions, which is kind of ironic because as soon as he gets to the present, the first thing he does is kill the present-day version of the Hellions to show how badass he is. And he's pretty pretty salty when the XSC finally catches up with him, too. Little Lord Malcolm, Hound, you're a traitor to your class. What's great here is that he could mean mutants or he could mean rich people. I think he means rich people, because he's a rich people. Right, but he uses the word hound, which calls it into question. I suppose so. Uh, But yeah, Fitzroy's a big jerk. I do appreciate, though, that he goes from wearing, like, a leather jacket and jeans to this incredibly elaborate bright green and red spandex outfit with, like, a giant loincloth and big shoulder pads and stuff. I guess he figures, like, all right. He's evil Santa. He is evil Santa. You're totally right. Oh, man, he's going to bring you murder for Christmas. Uh, he's more of an elf than a Santa, I guess. Yeah, so he just, like, builds murder in the workshop? And should probably unionize? So to save his ass, Fitzroy offers Bishop the location of the exhumes, and Bishop feels bad for crashing her whole Shard's whole holographic program, so he accepts it and he gives the location to Shard, who turns down Bishop's offer to come along as backup. She explains. No offense, bro, but... No. 
Every time we do a bust together, everyone assumes it was your bust. The only way I'll get credit is if you're not there. And as Bishop narrates, That was the last time I saw you alive. Because Fitzroy was not actually sending them to the, uh, Exhume headquarters, he was sending them to an M-plate nest, and that is where Shard ended up. Unfortunate. Uh, this does give Bishop a reason to really, really hate Fitzroy, though. Gotta say, so there's that. There are a lot of reasons to hate Fitzroy. Stupid evil elf. And that leads us to XSC number four, Conflagration with the same creative team as last time. So, M-plates, we talked about them, but to talk a little bit about their appearance more, because that's going to be relevant, they're kind of like vampires from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So they still have their appearances and their personalities, but now they have this one distinguishing physical difference. Instead of forehead weirdness and lisping, it's the hand mouths, and are evil. So they just seem like versions of themselves, but evil. Sure, why not? And that is what happens to Shard. When Bishop and his crew go after her missing crew, yeah, they're all M-plates. And just like vampires, once you're an M-plate, that is a one-way transformation. They're not going to be human again. But he's not willing to give up. Bishop's not willing to give up because he promised Grandmother might be Storm that he'd protect his sister no matter what. And her real self takes over for just a moment, begging him to end things, which for him is all the proof he needs that his shard is still in there. So, instead of killing her, he has Malcolm zap the hell out of him to charge him up, and then he zaps shard into very thorough unconsciousness and takes her off to the witness. That seems indirect and weird. I feel like this would have been a cool place to play with the whole siblings are partially immune to each other's powers thing, but it's not really mentioned. Instead, it's just an indirect way of shooting her. Yeah, well, presumably he's got better control doing that than they would with the guns. I guess so. I don't know. Future cop stuff is weird. So we are off to meet up with the witness, and I have to say the art team here is really good at aping the style of Wills Portacio, the guy that created the witness way back in the day. We see the same emaciated old man who could be Gambit, maybe, with blankets draped over his nude form, the same identical women still laying at his feet. Maybe they're just tired all the time? I don't know why they're there. Also the same weird jagged blue-edged word balloon, which I have no idea what that's supposed to imply in terms of the witness's voice. It means he talks like, um... I don't know, Frosty the Snowman? No, like from Rankin-Bass? Yeah. I just can't square that with Gambit's accent, I don't know. Uh, well, you know, that's the best I got here. Fair. This is where we learn that before Grandma Knotstorm and Hancock were taking care of the Bishop kids, the Witness did, after their parents died. We learn a lot more about this in the Bishop slash Gambit Sons of the Atom series a while back. But uh, that's not important now. What's important now is that the Witness wants to make a deal. If Bishop quits the XSE and works for him for a year, then he'll grant access to the Shi'ar technology to make the holo procedure work to transfer Shard into a holographic being, since her body is, well, it's an M-plate. Now, of course, this will kill her, but she's basically dead anyway. So this is, this is the one chance for a non-M-plate Shard to survive in some form. This part's kind of confusing, because it was implied earlier that that drawback was already present, that the procedure could work if you killed the host. And here it sounds like they need the Witness's technology to make it work at all. It seems like they need the Witness's technology to make it work with any degree of certainty. Like, they had a procedure that they had the potential to advance, but advancing it would necessarily kill the host. The Witness already seems to have that down. Why does the Witness have a bunch of Shi'ar technology in jail? Like, is this one of those low-security white-collar prisons? Is this is this just sexy jail? Is that what happened? Is he just in jail because he was too sexy, and that's why there are ladies laying around him all the time and they let him keep his Shi'ar technology? This is specifically horny jail, as mentioned on the internet, TM. Oh, I've, I've heard of the internet. You're on Twitter now with the rest of us, down in the trenches. I mean, you know, slightly. But to make all of this more tragic, of course Shard wakes up from unconsciousness during the process that will inevitably kill her. And of course, Lucas knows that this is just the M-plate part of her waking up. But still, she looks like herself, she sounds like herself, 
and only Bishop has the energy-absorbing powers to safely hold her down as she is killed by this process. It is rough, and it actually fits the story beats really well. This is not a cheap tragedy. This is actually pretty organic and genuinely affecting, I think. And Bishop goes, turns in his badge at the XSE, and basically gets a year's leave of absence to go work for the work for the witness. Yeah, he thinks he's done at the XSE. Hecate's like, nah, I know what's going on. You have to come back in a year. You're cool. In the meantime, though, OJ, Bishop's outfit, this armored red and blue spandex suit with random pouches and gadgets all the fuck over the place, plus this robot arm for no reason, or at least just a metal arm covering and this thin little headband. The XSE is stylish. This outfit, not so much. I guess it does lend credence to maybe the witness being Gambit, because this is an outfit only Gambit could love. Oh yeah. There's someone even more fashionable, though, that being the prison's head of security that we mentioned briefly earlier, Shackle. She has this yellow bodysuit with arm fins on the gloves, and this green hood slash nun's wimple slash cape that only has one of her eyes exposed for no goddamn reason. I don't know why you would dress your jailer that way, but she looks awesome. I, she must have depth perception issues. Maybe. I mean, we know that she was a good shot because Bishop recognizes her voice. It's Shirley, the old lady who was a kid back in the day. She got a new job. Okay, so we know that Shackle and the Witness's representative, who we've seen in the miniseries a couple times before, they work for a company called Stark Fujikawa. But they also appear to be servants of the Witness, who is definitely in a prison of some sort. This is confusing. Okay, so you know how the Queen of England isn't legally allowed to leave Windsor Palace? Uh, right, she'll disintegrate if she does. Yeah, exactly. I assume it's a setup kind of like that. The witness himself doesn't offer much by way of clarification. When Bishop asks whether the witness is Gambit, he responds, Let me tell you a secret, pup. I am LeBeau, and more than LeBeau. I am in jail. I am a jail. One strange man, me. You go now, pup. I am done with you for now. You bore me. Go. Well, that clears up absolutely nothing. I mean, I guess that's one way of working around continuity confusion, like ambiguous things, ambiguous things, now go away. So Bishop gets his holographic matrix uniprojector, tears apart the mainframe to keep the witness from making multiple shard copies, and heads back to the XSE, where his first assignment is to recapture Fitzroy. And we all know how that goes, because that's what landed him in the present. And so it's a great big circle. We've heard the whole history. And we're back to Lucas and Shard in the present, having successfully recapped basically their entire history with one question. What should Shard do now? Bishop really wanted her to join the X-Men. Shard kind of wants to do her own thing for the first time in her life-slash-holo-life to have her own identity. She's been running around with X-Factor, and she likes it there. And something about having told Shard the whole story, having remembered how important that independence was to her, Bishop gets it in a way that he didn't at the beginning of the series. He's cool with it. And with his blessing, she holographically fades away. And with that, you've got questions. Enoch emailed to ask if we know of any Mexican-American mutants apart from El Guapo. So, as far as I know, none that are confirmed. There are actually quite a few Mexican-American Marvel characters. Um, one of the Captain Universes, Robbie Reyes, the current Ghost Rider... Uh, Victor La Mancha from Runaways, although he's also kind of a robot, so that's confusing. We do have some mutants with uh, Spanish-derived surnames who might be Mexican-American, but aren't specifically so. We have Darwin, we have Farallon Thorne, we have Tempest, we have the mutant tattoo artist who tattooed Ink. But uh, yeah, none actually confirmed. Alright, so our, our next email isn't actually a question. Philip got in touch with us to let us know that the long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs line has actually appeared in the comics. Specifically, it shows up in the first issue of Secret Wars number 2, or Secret Wars 2, where it is spoken not by Rogue, but by Cannonball. 
Right, because of course that line was made most famous by Rogue saying it in the first episode of the 90s X-Men cartoon. This scene occurs in Secret Wars 2 number 1, specifically when the New Mutants are fighting Thundersword. That was the character that Marvel editor-in-chief and Secret Wars 2 writer Jim Shooter created just to make fun of a writer he didn't like, Steve Gerber. What a dick move. Jim Shooter, interesting guy as I understand it. In this part, Cannonball also specifically says in the same panel that he's almost invulnerable when he's rocket blasting. That phrase is actually almost never said as we remember it. I'm not invulnerable when I'm blasting. I don't even know that it was until way, way later in like New Avengers or US Avengers or something. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where we latched onto it from, but you know, it's canon now. Cannonball? We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It's the Angry Claremontian narrator. I appreciate your, your cultivation of shared interests, Brad and Jenny Quitek. But couldn't those interests have stopped with podcasts? Did they, did they really need to extend to hard-light holograms of that? I mean, honestly, what will the neighbors think? What the neighbors think may be answered by the next person the mic goes to, and that is the, uh, sexy witness. Gambit, I mean, the witness, must apologize for missing last episode's tanks. Alas, the witness be occupied, what with sitting in this confusing corporate techno-prison with these demanding floor ladies. Dante Rodriguez... The witness's next-door prisoner knows exactly why the witness be imprisoned here in sexy jail. That's right, we all be in sexy jail for being too damn sexy. Specifically, you remember this, Joseph Pearson, my other next-door prisoner? In the early 21st century, the powers that be did proclaim, heroes don't do that. And the witness, well, he most definitely did do that, and things like it as did Dante and Joseph. So we all be carted off to sexy jail to sit around naked under loosely draped blankets with floor people at our feet. Ain't no justice in this world, mes amis. Not for the sexy. Not for the three of us. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, Portland, Oregon, and Horny Jail, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out of that jail most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for very sexy original illustrations by David Wynn alongside visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Because heroes definitely do that. Next week, it's Hawk Talk, but we'll be back in two weeks with Generation X. For the return of Carl the Executioner. Aw, uh, that guy. Carl. Carl.